0: Good afternoon and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Your panel this afternoon consists of, to my right, Judge Jeff Carpenter. To my left, Judge Julie Flood. I'm John Tyson. I'd uh, like to recognize our clerk, Delana McKessie, for opening court. And also our court's marshal, uh, Officer Richard Rameliard. We have one case on the docket today for arguments. Are there any preliminary matters to come before the court before we start?
1: No, not pressure.
0: Okay. All right, then uh, we have the case of uh, Omni Pauper, LLC, versus uh, Eugene Dunstan. We will hear from the appellate.
2: Good afternoon and may it please the court. My name is Hunter Winstead and I represent the plaintiff appellant landlord in this matter. My intention is to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This case is about a landlord and a tenant who mutually agreed to the following lease term. The landlord would provide well water to the tenant. And in exchange, the tenant would pay a flat monthly fee in advance on the first of each month. For two and a half years, both parties upheld their end of the deal. The landlord provided the well water, and the tenant voluntarily and willingly paid. However, only after the landlord terminated the tenant's month-to-month lease, and after the tenant refused to vacate the premises, did the tenant develop the idea that those 29 well water payments he had previously voluntarily made were somehow unlawful. Thus, the tenant initiated the present counterclaim. Then, in an unprecedented and unsupported decision, the trial court determined that the landlord violated two very narrow provisions of the North Carolina Debt Collections Act. One for each of those 29 well water payments that the landlord simply passively accepted, and one for merely alleging on the small claims complaint that the tenant's rate of rent was $1,350. Now, under this court's de novo review, it becomes clear that the trial court's order contains numerous errors of law and is neither supported by its own findings of fact or the record evidence. Therefore, this court should reverse. Now, with respect to issue one before this court, subsection 75 55 of the North Carolina Debt Collections Act is a very narrow provision designed to prohibit debt collectors from charging exorbitant incidental fees. To prevail on a claim under this subsection, six elements must be shown. First, it must be shown that the alleged violator was engaging in the affirmative act of debt collection from a consumer. Second, it must be shown that that debt collector was attempting to collect or collecting fees incidental to that principal debt. Third, it must be shown that the debt collector was not legally entitled to accept those incidental fees. Fourth, it must be shown that in merely accepting those fees, the debt collector was engaged in an unfair or deceptive act that rises to the level of unconscionability. Fifth, the act must have been inter-affecting commerce. And sixth, there must have been a proximate cause, proximate cause of an injury from the act.
0: Mr. Winston, your your client below was the plaintiff, correct? That's right, Your Honor. And this case came out of a summary ejectment complaint? That's right, Your Honor. Um, I understand you had an expired lease month to month. You demanded possession. The tenant uh, refused to leave, and you brought some ejectment in order to regain possession of the premises. That's Is that right. correct? That's exactly right. And there were counterclaims asserted against your client, which the lower court um, denied your relief and granted relief to the tenant. That's exactly right. Did you regain possession? Yes, eventually, only after a second
2: trial. Was brought an entirely separate summary judgment proceeding was brought later, and now the tenant, or the landlord, has regained possession.
0: So normally, when and I understand this this premises was served by well water, correct? That's right. And normally, uh, the habitability statute under the Residential Rental Agreements Act, there's an obligation to provide what's referred to as a habitable premises. Is that correct? That's right, right. Under that act, is there any obligation for a landlord to provide water? Not just by virtue of the act.
2: It's, it's a duty that arises only as a matter of contract. And that's what subsection 42-41 makes clear that says the duties in 42-42 are dependent upon the, the payment of rent. So it's a matter of contract.
0: All right. And in this case, the utilities was not a part of the actual rent, or was it?
2: The, the, it was the tenant under the base rent. It was the tenant's responsibility to pay for water, just as it would in a normal case where it would pay a public utility, for instance. Then there's a separate agreement
0: for the well water, which is the $125 flat fee. It was the amount that the tenant was to pay was it based on usage? It was no. It was, it was simply a flat
2: fee that the the representative of the landlord used that amount because it's what Section Eight uses in other. Uh, properties that they manage it's an allocation it's not based on the usage per se it's just a, a flat fee for the for the service of the well water
0: and that came about as a result of an amendment to the original lease that's exactly right on, on page 44 of the record your honor. and also there was a, a provision regarding uh, washer and dryer separate fee for that that's right and that fee was remitted that that's right your honor yes was that remission in writing that I'm not sure your honor that that issue is not necessarily relevant to this case. I, I don't believe there
2: was a remittance in writing, but well, doesn't
0: it go to the last issue that the amount that you billed on the last claim did include that fifty-dollar fee? Oh, oh no, to, to issue two, your honor, um, regarding
2: seventy-five minus fifty-four-four. No, your honor, the the thirteen fifty was the base rent. It, the the rent had increased at the at the time that the. Um, complaint was filed the base rent was 1,350 and that's testimony from Yin Zhang on page 41 of the record.
0: Well it, it, at did the not time happen. it was $1,175. At,
2: at the time that the contract back in 2019 it was 1175
0: yes. And then another 125 for the water. That's right. So that's 1300
2: yes well by the time the by the time the complaint was filed though the, the base rent had increased
0: okay so, so it was so the $50 was not for the washer and dryer fee it was for added it rent. was never
2: charged my understanding is that it just was never charged to the tenant okay thank you yes your honor now five of the six necessary elements of the 75-55 claim have not been established in this case first in merely passively accepting The voluntary and timely well water payments the landlord was not engaged in debt collection second these well water payments clearly were not incidental fees third even if they were incidental fees and even if the ncdca did broadly apply there could not have been a violation because the landlord was legally entitled pursuant to the itemized rent provision on page 44 to accept those payments fourth there was no unfair act or deceptive act and there was certainly no unconscionable act and then fifth and finally, there was never any proximate cause of any injury. Now, with respect to element number one, there could not have been a violation of the NCDCA because the NCDCA only governs the personal solicitation to recover defaulted payments. And Your Honors, this comes from the plain definitions of the statute. There's, there's three definitions that control. There's debt, debt, collection, debt collector, and consumer. Together, these definitions show that the NCDCA only governs the affirmative collection of an obligation that is either owed or due and has been incurred by a consumer. Now, these words incurred and collect are important here because their plain meaning show there must be the personal solicitation to recover defaulted payments. Now, this court has explained that the word incurred, it has this negative connotation of, of falling into debt. A debt is only incurred when liability attaches. So in a services contract like the present case, liability does not attach until there's been a default on the payment, especially where here the payments were made in advance of any use of water.
0: Now, so on the, your summary ejectment, did, did you not allege past due rent of 1350 Yes,
2: but that, that had no relation to the 29 well water payments that had already been accepted. That, that, that had happened prior to any summary ejectment proceedings. They were paid voluntarily and timely. But you did allege a sum due. Yes, there, there was some due. I, I can't remember exactly what that was. I think it was only the rent for March, I believe, Your Honor. I don't remember the exact amount, but yes, there, there was there was a portion
0: of um, money owed alleged. And if I remember correctly, um, the, the, the rent here was being paid by a third party, is that correct?
2: That's right. Well, a, a portion of it was there was a private agreement where the tenant was only paying, I believe, 198 directly. It was still liable for the entire amount, but it was the third party that was assisting the tenant to make those payments. So
0: is your client a party to that agreement?
2: Yes. Okay. And th- that agreement is not in the record, Your Honor. It's, it's only the, the initial lease agreement that's dispositive in this case, and that's, that's the agreement that's in the record. And that, that's really what only, p- pertaining to the counterclaims, that's the only agreement that really, really matters in this case. So there, there must be, uh, as we just briefly discussed, in order for a debt to be incurred, liability has to attach, which means default. There also has to be an affirmative act. There has to be a collection. And as the United States Supreme Court has explained, there's only a collection when there is a personal solicitation or legal proceedings. That's just that affirmative act. And now, this interpretation makes sense when looking at the purpose behind why 75, 75- All of Article II really was enacted. So back in 1975, Attorney General Rufus Edmiston brought a claim against JCPenney because JCPenney and other similar companies were engaging in all sorts of unscrupulous debt collection practices. They would extend credit out to consumers, and then when that consumer could not make a payment, they defaulted on a payment, JCPenney had these collections agents who would call all of these debtors now. At all hours of the day, they would call their employers. They They would say that they were gonna charge all sorts of exorbitant fees all in an effort to collect those defaulted payments. Now, Attorney General Edmiston wanted to punish that activity. So he brought a claim in 1975 under what is now Article 1, because Article 2 didn't exist yet, 75-1.1. Now, the North Carolina Supreme Court denied that claim because it said, at that time, 75-1.1 only applied to sales. It did not cover debt collection. So then only two weeks later, Attorney General Rufus Edmiston himself wrote what is now Article 2, the North Carolina Debt Collections Act. And then it was passed only about a month later in June of 1977, just after the, the Supreme Court of North Carolina had issued its decision. And thus, the intent behind Article 2 is to punish the exact activity that went unpunished in the J.C. Penney case. That is the personal solicitation to recover defaulted payments. This interpretation also makes sense in light of the precedents from this court. Since 1977, 45 years ago, neither of the appellate courts of this state have ever applied the North Carolina Debt Collections Act to any situation that did not involve the personal solicitation of defaulted payments. Now, the trial court in this case ignored the plain language that we just discussed, ignored the purpose behind the statute, and ignored this court's precedence. Instead, the trial court determined that the NCDCA just automatically applies by virtue of there being a household-related contract. Consider the example of the neighborhood teenager who wants to start his own lawn care business. So he goes to his neighbors and says, hey, I'll cut your grass once a week in exchange you pay me a flat monthly fee on the first of every month. Under the trial court's interpretation, that teenager just became a debt collector, subject to all the stringent terms of the NCDCA. For example, if that teenager knows that one of his neighbors has an attorney, the teenager is prevented under 75 553 from even speaking directly with one of those people that he's in contract with. That result is absurd. This court should reject the interpretation that the trial court adopted. Instead, it should adopt the plain meaning, the reasoning behind the statute, and its own precedents to conclude that there must be the personal solicitation of a defaulted payment in order for debt collection to occur. If,
0: if we agree with you that your client had the right to charge separately for the water, is the debt collection issue moot?
2: if this court agrees that the the water fees were separate
0: that, that you're under chapter 42 your your client had the right to to bill separately for the water if we agree- oh yes but your honor I'm not sure that it would be moot it would just the, the claim would just fail because
2: one of the necessary elements so in some sense I guess it could be moot because the court would just say there was a legal entitlement because legal entitlement is a necessary element then yes the claim automatically fails so there, there's these are five independent reasons for reversal. So so yes, Your Honor, I think is the short answer to that
0: question. So let's go back to the contract sure. claim. So, un, under what basis the trial court cited um, the chapter sixty two, the public utility statute as a basis for metering. I think the trial court did not cite. Well, it's argued. And yes, yes, it sir. is argued. Yes, that's right. So, c-
2: can you walk us through that? Sure. Um, so there was there's was really three theories to parse out here on the legal entitlement. Yeah, the first one is directly the 62-110G argument. That that's the argument that was advanced at trial. And it clearly fails because the Public Utilities Act, which includes 62-110G, plainly does not apply where there is a, a water provision that does not supply more than 15 or 15 or more residential units. Here it's a single well that supplies only one residential house. So the,
0: the Public Utilities Act clearly does not apply. Okay, I wanna clear up one thing sure. a factual dispute or. Yes. There was some argument that the well was separately metered, but that metering was not used. And my question is is that meter for the power, for the electricity to run the pump, or was there an actual meter showing water usage on that well? I don't actually know the answer to that question as to what the purpose was
2: the, the, of the meter was, it possibly it was for the power, but I'm, I'm just not sure, Your Honor, but the, the point that, that really matters here is that there was no requirement that it needed to be metered. It just happened to be that there was a meter available for the well. And I'm not exactly whether the meter was for
0: water or for electricity, but it, it just was never used. And that's not a dispute. Well, if, 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 if it was power, it was certainly being used because that would be the source of the power to run the pump. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, Your Honor. That's right.
2: Yes. So the that was the first argument, which was the tenant's argument at trial was directly 62-110G. And then the trial court seemingly rejected that argument and adopted its own theory as to legal entitlement, which is the implied warranty of habitability theory. And that one just plainly fails as we briefly discussed, because clearly under 42-42.1, the General Assembly has provided at least one example of how landlords can charge for water. So Under the trial court's own interpretation, there would be a direct contradiction between 42-42.1, which is an explicit example of how landlords can provide water, and and the trial court's seeming conclusion that landlords can never charge for water. So that's why that that theory just fails on its face. Now the third theory is the one advanced before this court for the first time on appeal, which is that subsection 42-42.1 somehow invalidates the itemized rent provision, which is on record page 44. 42-42.1, however, says absolutely nothing about a private well water agreement. That statute only exists to incentivize those landlords who are purchasing water from a supplier to pass on those charges to the tenant. The reason is because when tenants are paying for water in those circumstances, it conserves water because the tenants are not wasting it. Now this is clear from the plain language of the statute, which simply says a landlord may charge for the cost of providing Cost of providing water pursuant to 62-110G. Now the language may makes clear that this is a permissive action, it's an incentive. It is in no way restrictive. And looking to 62-110G, all that statutory scheme does, it, it's enabling legislation that says Public Utilities Commission adopt these certain rules to govern this very specific situation where you have a provider as the public utilities commission defines provider is just a landlord who is passing on costs
0: would that only apply if the source of the water was public that's exactly and right. not and not from a well that's exactly right your honor did you was an argument raised before the district court whether the was that the fact that it's a private well and the source of the water is not from a public entity yes that was that, argued at district court yes
2: So, 62-110G, the the only reason it exists is to encourage those landlords who are buying water from a water supplier to pass on that water to the tenant because that's how water is conserved. And this is what Senator Claude Felter explained on the Senate floor. And this is in the Landlord's memorandum of Additional Authority. There's a transcript laying out his explanation of why 42-42.1 and 62-110G A, for that matter, why they exist. And he explains that prior to December of 2003 the EPA had what North Carolinians saw as an absurd interpretation of the federal Safe Drinking Water Act. That interpretation was those landlords of these large apartment buildings, this is why the language in the session law says contiguous units, those those landlords of these large contiguous buildings, multi-family units, the interpretation of the EPA was that if you're simply passing on these costs, buying water from a public utility and passing it on, submetering it, then that makes that landlord a public utility under the federal Safe Drinking Water Act. Now, this created a pretty significant problem in North Carolina because landlords just weren't charging their tenants for water. And that meant that tenants were leaving faucets running, leaving tubs running, wasting water. And so for eight years, the North Carolina government led the charge in trying to change the EPA's stance. And that finally, in December of 2003, and this memo is also in the memo of additional authority, the EPA finally changed its stance and said, okay, if you're merely passing on those costs, you are not a public utility regulated federally. So at the very next session of the General Assembly, North Carolina changed its laws to recognize that, that it for eight years tried to change. And that's where 42-42.1 comes from. The, the purpose is to incentivize charging tenants. It is not restrictive in any way, and it says absolutely nothing about a private well water agreement. So that is just one independent reason for why this court should reverse on the legal entitlement. Element. Now, regarding the second element, which is the incidental fee element, even if the NCDCA applies broadly, there could not have been a violation because sec- subsection 75-55 does not apply specifically. It only applies to the collection or attempted collection of incidental fees. And as the North Carolina Supreme Court has explained, a fee or incidental means dependent upon something else's primary. So that's the plain language of the statute shows that there's only an incidental fee if it depends upon the collection of a debt in the first place. This is clear, both from the examples provided in the statute itself, which has filing fees, service of process fees, charges for court costs, and all the examples from the case law in the Friday case and the Williams case. We have late fees and administrative debt collection fees. What all of these fees have in common, why they're incidental, is because they depend upon the affirmative solicitation and collection of a debt in the first place. It's what the debt collector charges for the trouble of having to go after the defaulted payment in the first place. Now, the water payments in, in this case Are entirely distinguishable from all of those fees they they are not incidental to any principal debt they stand alone all they are is consideration for the service of providing well water the premises they are not incidental fees there could not have thus been a violation of 75 552 also to the fourth element there could not have been a violation because there was no unfair deceptive act and there was certainly no unconscionable act now for an act to be deceptive it must have the tendency or capacity to mislead For an act to be unfair, it must be unethical, and scrupulous, or immoral. The only allegation from the tenant of any wrongdoing in this case is the mere fact that the water payments were flat instead of metered. Now, there's nothing unscrupulous, immoral, or unethical about a simple flat fee payment. In fact, public utilities are even allowed to charge flat fee payments, as is seen in 62-110 G-1B. Just one example, there's nothing nefarious about a flat fee. Since that's the only allegation of wrongdoing, there there is no unfair act there, and there's certainly no unconscionable act there. So yet another reason of why this court should reverse. Now the final reason as to issue one is that there was never any proximate cause to any injury. As we just discussed, the only allegation of any wrongdoing is that there was a flat fee. But there's no evidence anywhere in the record, and there's no finding of fact that if the fee would have been metered, that the tenant would have paid any less amount. Thus there was no injury. The tenant got the benefit of his bargain. He paid the flat fee and he received the water. To hold otherwise would be unjust. It would say that landlords have to provide free water to tenants, which is just simply not the law. So thus there's five independent reasons for why this court should reverse as to issue one.
0: Under the statute uh, 42, um, isn't the provision of potable water or the absence of the provision of potable water one of the conditions that the uh, landlord is under a duty to repair. Yes, and and that happened in this case. And so, if if they're under a duty to repair it, to to repair it and provide it, the absence of that would be a violation. Sure, under under Chapter Forty Two. Right, but but the what only reason there's that duty is because the tenant's paying for it. Well, let's just say the situation where there was a well and a pump that was just included with the rental. And, and no separate fee was charged, and the well went down, wouldn't the landlord at that point be required on habitability to get the well up and going again? Yes, and
2: that's that's just not the case we had here. The the agreement with, with regard to the base rent was explicit that water utility was the responsibility of the tenant. So the only consideration for that portion of 42-42 was the payment of $125 a month. Now, the, the parties are free to contract to alter Forty-two forty-two, for instance, they they can they can state that yes, well water is included, and then the duty to have potable water is included in that. But there must be consideration for it.
0: That's that's what forty-two. Well, my first question to you was: Can a landlord rent a house without water under the under the residential Arrebus act? That that's an interesting question. That
2: would there would be an issue of first impression. I, I don't know that it's. The court does not need to decide that issue but it it does raise the question of let's say there's a cabin out in the mountains that just doesn't have water is it then completely illegal to ever charge to rent there that that seems absurd but it is an open question due to the duty of potability it's just not really relevant here because the water was potable here as the trial court found and the consideration for that duty was the hundred twenty-five dollar
0: flat fee payments so I can imagine a house that wouldn't have a stove or a refrigerator air conditioning yeah well one
2: example that actually is, is helpful is the Mendenhall case which is cited by the tenants in their memo of additional authority in that case the tenant moved in two months late because the hot water heater was working was not working and the court said well there's not just a standing obligation to have hot water but the parties can contract and so if there's a promise to provide hot water then yes there's a duty to make sure all the pipes work right so that shows that It's actually the contract, it's the freedom of contract between the parties that controls the applicability of 42-42. In that case, there was a promise to provide hot water, so then there was a duty to provide it. Similar here.
0: Okay, you've got about 30 seconds left before you invade Yes, thank your honor, just
2: very briefly as to issue two, um, this court should also reverse that there must be a false statement that had the capacity or the tendency to mislead. And as we briefly discussed, the allegation in the complaint that the rent was $1,350 was accurate. There's no record evidence contradicting it. The, the tenant on, on transcript page 41 testified that the amount was $1,350, the flat fee, and the tenant agreed. That's on record page 10 in the answer. The tenant agreed it was 1,350, and there was, there's absolutely no evidence that there was any tenancy or capacity misleading. Unless there's any further questions from your honors, I'll sit down and
0: uh, return on rebuttal. Okay. We'll reserve the remainder of your time for rebuttal. Argument from the Appellate. Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Isaac Sturgill with the uh, Legal Aid of North Carolina. I'm joined by my co-counsel, Shamika Jamison. Uh, Mr. Dunson is also present today.
0: So you're, you're, so, so you're Mr. Sturgill?
1: Yes, Your Honor. Got That's it. correct. Okay, thank you. In this case, the trial... The court ordered Omnipopper to pay damages and civil penalties for collecting illegal fees for water uh, in violation of our unfair debt collection statute. As opposing counsel mentioned, specifically 75 552 2 which prohibits landlords and other debt collectors from collecting or attempting to collect fees they were not legally entitled to. And The trial court properly found that these water fees, these flat fees, were illegal for two reasons. Uh, first, Ani Popper charged a flat fee that was not based off of actual metered usage, which violates provisions governing the sale wa- the of water by landlords, specifically 62 110G. Second, Ani Popper charged a fee for something it was already legally obligated to provide under a Residential Rental Agreements Act, which is the means or access to potable water under 42 42. And I'd like to start with the second, which is the the fact that Ani Popper was not legally entitled to charge an additional fee for access to water. And I'd like to make a distinction there. Um, it's not so much that the, the landlord has to provide free water, but they have to provide access to it. So in this particular case, the sole source of water on the property was the, the well. And what you essentially had was a situation where uh, they signed a lease. Uh, as part of that lease, there was an implied warranty of habitability that, the, um, that there would be access to potable water. On the property and then a, a few days later signed a lease amendment where to have access to that water um he had to start paying this additional fee and i would like to say that there's not a question about whether or not a, a landlord failing to provide potable water is a breach of the implied warranty of habitability um your honor mentioned things like a air conditioner or an appliance um under 42-42 um there is an obligation for certain things, appliances, that if you supply them, you're required to keep them in working order. But lack of potable water, specifically under that statute, is our access to that water is considered an imminently dangerous condition under the statute. And so, not having potable water means that the place is uh, per se in, uninhabitable, and the landlord would have a, a duty, like Your Honor mentioned, to uh, immediately um, repair that issue.
0: You, you, you agree that it's not unusual for. Um rental premises, residential, uh, that are connected to a public utility for the tenant to have the responsibility to to pay for the water?
1: I agree, Your Honor. And sewer? Yes.
0: And electricity? Uh, Yes, Your Honor. And gas? Yes, Your Honor. So the fact that a tenant pays for utilities separate from the rent, that's very common. In fact, I think that's probably the predominant model. Do you agree with that?
1: I do agree that it's common for tenants to pay a utility in addition to rent, but again, we're not saying that Aunty Popper had a duty to provide free water in this case, but they do have a duty under Chapter 42 to provide access to water, and since the, the sole source of water on his property was a well, um, had you know Mr. Dunson not agreed to pay that fee, uh, foreseeably he would not have access to potable water.
0: So let's say the, that the water was public and the, the main broke, and you didn't have water coming to the house, but it was not his responsibility to fix it. What would happen in that case?
1: In that case, Your Honor, the landlord would have a responsibility to, um, well, I'm sorry, let me clarify, if, if the, if the, the pipes on the property that is under the landlord's control, in other words, the, the plumbing inside the house, if something broke to where water cannot be had by the tenant, the landlord would have a, a duty to fix those pipes and to return access of the water to the tenant.
0: But my question is, if, if a main broke and, and there was no water going to the house, would that absolve the tenant of the obligation to pay rent? Uh,
1: Your Honor, in that case, I think that um, you're talking about a situation where the, the uh, I guess, something owned by the city, like the city pipeline broke. Right. I think the landlord would still have an obligation to provide fit and habitable premises and potable water, which, which may mean um, finding some other type of temporary accommodation. Um, for the tenant in that situation
0: there were a number of hotel bills in the record. Can you tell us what that was about?
1: Hotel um, Your Honor I am not recalling that part of the record I'm not sure if that's something where mr. Dunstan may have had to stay in a hotel tempor- temporarily temporarily um, uh, There was another issue. That's not really part of uh, before the court today, which was an issue with the, the potability of the water itself and so that may be related to that. I uh, don't recall off the top of my head, Your Honor.
0: Can you explain to the court why a private landowner would have a liability under Chapter 62?
1: Yes, Your Honor. And opposing counsel has mentioned their main argument is that uh, that statute is not applicable to Ani Popper because Ani Popper is not a, a public utility. Um, but I do believe that's a bit of a a red herring in this situation, and the reason why is because the specific section that we're talking about, 62-110G, does not regulate only public utilities. It regulates, uh, quote, uh, lessors of residential property as defined under 42-59, which defines leased residential premises as a house, building, mobile home, or apartment, whether publicly or privately owned lease for residential purposes. So there are parts of chapter 62 that apply only to public utilities and there are other parts that provide uh, apply more broadly. There there are many public utilities that could also be lessors, but not all lessors are public utilities and that statute decide or the legislature decided that statute to not make it apply only to public utilities but to all lessors in general.
0: So is it based on the source of the water?
1: It's not Based on the source of the the water, Your Honor, there's no enumerated exception in 62-110G saying that the provision uh, does not apply to situations where um, the source of the water is a well, for example, and so it it applies across the the board uh, for all all lessors. Um, Another thing that opposing counsel brought up was this idea that this should only uh, apply in multifamily contexts or in a context where the landlord uh, owns an apartment complex, for example. Um, he used the term uh, contiguous units. And I would like to point out, too, as far as that issue is concerned, that there's not a carve-out in 42-42.1 R62-110 for lessers of single-family homes. The prior version of the statute did have some language like that, but this changed with an, amendments to both 42-42.1 and 62-110 g in 2017. If you look at the, our appendix on page five, those are the annotated statutes. Uh, the first on page five is the annotated statute for 42-42.1, and if you look, if you can find the session law 2017-10, there's a number of uh, <clears throat> different legislative history notes there. But that particular session law 2017-10 changed the application of the statute to lessors providing water uh, to quote from, I'm sorry, from the former version, which was tenants who occupy the same contiguous premises, meaning like a multifamily unit, contiguous meaning the units are touching each other, to simply lessees. So they changed it from only applying to landlords providing water to tenants and contiguous units to all landlords providing w- water to any lessee. So now it applies to landlords selling water to, t- uh, to any tenants. Uh, The same Session Law, this is on Appendix Page 26, the very same Session Law 2017-10 changed Subsection G from allowing lessers to charge for the cost of water service to persons who occupy, again, quote, the same contiguous premises, there's that same phrase, to simply persons who occupy, quote, the least premises. So again, they remove that language of contiguous Premises, which would go in line with an apartment complex, and made it apply more broadly to all lessees. And moreover, that same session also added subsection G4A to 62 110G, which created a process for lessers of uh, single family homes to apply for authority to charge water. So, single family homes specifically. So, with the argument that this is only for apartment complexes or this is only for uh, multifamily units, that may have been the case under prior versions of the law. But as of 2017, with the amendment of the statute, that is no longer the case. And again, there's no carve-out or provision in that statute for uh, well water.
3: Mr. Sergio, if the landlord is not a public utility, what does that do to your position in the case?
1: It doesn't change it, Your Honor, because again, 62-110G does not... that the
3: whole basis of the trial court's order that he was a public he was a public utility providing water? That gives rise to the... Uh, breach of warranty of inhabitability and the fair debt collections practices act.
1: No, Your Honor. The trial court's finding is on record of page uh, record page 112 paragraph 61 that says the plaintiff was not entitled to collect fees for provision of unmetered well water Right.
3: So let me walk you through the statutes for a minute because you skipped over one that I think is important. It's uh, chapter 62-3. It's the definition section of 62 that's 62 is referenced in 42-42.1, so the definition section of 62, chapter 62, 62-3, sub-23, uh, sub-D, reads the term public utility except as otherwise expressly provided in this chapter shall not include the following. Skip down to four of the sub-subsection any person, not otherwise, a public utility who furnishes such service or commodity, only to himself, his employees, his tenants, when such service or commodity is not resold or used by others.
1: Yeah, sure. And again, that goes to the definition of public utility, but I don't, the the Omnipopper does not have to be found to be a public utility in order for 62-110G and the, the requirement for metered well water to apply because that provision applies not just to public utilities, but to all lessors of residential property, and there's other parts of Chapter 62 that show that 62 can apply to things other than public utilities, so back to the definition section that you mentioned. If you look at 62-3, subsection 2, for example, it talks about the definition of a certificate of public convenience and necessity, and it says that, um, is defined as a certificate of public convenience and necessity issued by the commission to a person or a public u- utility. So it, that's another example of where 62 does not only govern public utilities. And again, in 62-110 g public utility is not used in that statute. The term is uh, less orders of residential property as defined under Article 7 of Chapter 42.
0: Was so, he required to get the certificate?
1: Um, Your Honor, that issue was not raised in this case. I, um, I, I, I do believe that is the case, but that, that was not an issue that was brought before um, before the court.
0: Well, I'm trying to follow up on Judge Carpenter's argument. If the definition of who's covered on the statute excludes private, law, private uh, property owners who are not reselling public water, um, how, how can the statute then apply to them? When they, by definition they're not required to get the certificate of public necessity and that they're excluded from the definition of utility.
1: Well, again, the, the definition of public utility, uh, granted, I, I understand your argument that um, Ani Popper would not fall under that definition, but again, under 62 110G, it is not governing public utilities, it's governing less source of property. And as far as the certificate, is considered under the definition I just read. It, it can be issued to a person or a public utility. So even if something's not a public utility, it can be issued to that person. And again, and the I,
0: folks that are reselling and, utilities,
1: and, Your Honor, it doesn't only apply to. Again, in 6211G, it, it does not mention that it only applies to situations where somebody is reselling a utility. There's there's no carve out for the, the selling of water um, from a well. And I, I think that that's only fair I mean I think the policy there is that regardless of the source of water that the tenant pay for uh, what they're actually using otherwise you know what would stop a a landlord from charging whatever fee that they they wanted to there has to be some kind of limitation on the the amount for water which is a, a basic sorry chapter 62
3: 110 G subsection 1b appears to allow a provider to charge a flat fee not necessarily metered there is a provision for metering of water but there's also a provision for the charge of a flat fee.
1: Yes, Your Honor, but those are very specific um, specific uh, exclusions to the general rule that the water has to be metered, and none of those apply in this case. So, for example, in, in one situation, there's an exception for a landlord of uh, contiguous units that were built before a certain date where metering water is unfeasible, but that ex- exception, for example, does not apply. And in fact, there was, a, there was a meter on this well, and, and to answer Your Honor's last question about whether it metered, Electricity or, or water. In um, the transcript, it, it does specify that that was a meter for for water. That's under page 24, uh, lines 21 through 22. Which, when asked uh, about the meter, the property manager said it was a, it was for metering water. So it's not. Those exceptions don't apply. The flat fee exceptions don't apply because this is not a case where uh, that it fits any of those exceptions, where metering the water was unfeasible. In fact, there was a a meter for the water, and the the landlord chose not to use it. The the landlord also um, did not, uh, you know, received a warning that the the fee was unacceptable. So Mr. Dunstan's uh, Alliance, which is the organization that helped uh, pay Mr. Dunstan's rent, if you look on record page 70, um, there was an email from Alliance to Mr. Dunstan. Again, the line served him because he's disabled. That the water charge was unacceptable, and they asked uh, Ani Popper to return the money to him. So it's not like Ani Popper did not have the ability to meter the water, or that they didn't have any kind of inclination that 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 fee was was unfair. Another thing I, I do want to address, I think it's very important, is opposing counsel's argument uh, concerning the the Brown case. This is the this is the federal court, uh, district court decision, which is, uh, which is unbinding, obviously. Um, but I think opposing counsel is trying to read a, a default requirement into a debt, and otherwise someone is not a debt collector unless the debt is past due and is in default, where that doesn't exist. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that case just to kind of explain why um, the court should not adopt the Brown decision's uh, precedent. And so, the plain definition of what a debt is under um, under the uh, I'm sorry under Chapter seventy five does not have this default provision. Um, so the the definition is just any obligation owed or due or alleged to be owed or due from a consumer. So the Brown Court essentially it. I think it misinterpreted a couple of things. First of all, it overextended Friday. So Friday is a case that found that a landlord uh, collecting past due rent and uh, late fees would, could be considered a debt collector under Article 2. However, Friday did not go so as far as to say that a landlord collecting a debt that is not in default uh, is excluded from that definition. But what the Brown Court goes on to do is it references several cases from other jurisdictions an example of that would be Austin versus Lakeview, which is a Maryland case. And it, it, it compared that to the North Carolina debt collection statute, but it essentially found that, uh, that the court in North Carolina should follow those precedents from other states, but it missed a very critical distinction there. And that distinction is, is those cases are dealing with debt collection statutes from other jurisdictions that either mirror or incorporate the federal debt collection statute. And the the important difference between the federal debt collection statute and the North Carolina debt collection statute is that the federal debt collection statute does have an enumerated express um, exception to the definition of debt collector uh, that says that someone collecting a debt that is not in default is exempt from that provision. There's other differences in the definition of debt collector. For example, the federal debt collection act only applies to third party debt collector, so somebody that's collecting a debt that's owed to themselves is not considered a debt collector under the Federal Act, whereas they are under the North Carolina Act. And I think the Brown Court really, really fundamentally misunderstood that. Um, The Brown Court went so as far as to uh, misquote uh, a a case read, and what the Brown Court said is that the, um, the Federal Debt Collection Act is much broader than the State Act, which Which is not the case. It's actually the exact opposite of that. The read court actually said that the state act is much broader than the federal act for some of the reasons that we just explained. And policy-wise, that just does not make sense to me to require that a a debt must be in default um, for someone to be considered a a debt collector. I mean, that that means that if a any um, any debt collector, if they charge an illegal fee or if they get somebody to agree to a fee that's illegal under the law and that person pays it on time, that somehow that debt collector is, is immune from liability in that situation. It's almost punishing the consumer um, for paying what they believe is a, is a, a valid debt on time. Um, so even policy-wise, I don't think that that comports with the definition of debt or debt collector under our state act, which is broader than the federal act. And uh, In your mind,
3: is there a difference between an obligation to pay at a time certain
1: and a debt
3: past due and owed.
1: There's not, Your Honor. There's also there's also a case from our Supreme Court.
3: Obligors and debtors are the same. We can use the terms in, interchangeably.
1: I'd I believe, and I, I like to point to you, there is a, a case from the Supreme Court of North Carolina that is the Blesdale case that essentially says a, a debt becomes a debt at the at the moment it's, it's due. So if you're paying the, the debt on the that's due that's date. That's
3: the distinction I'm, I'm talking to you about. If it's not due yet, it's an obligation to pay at a time certain. When it becomes due, then it becomes a debt. Would logically follow in my mind but uh, I that's why I'm asking the question I want to know your thoughts on it I
1: believe I believe, so. I believe that at the at the moment it becomes due it becomes a debt and mr. Dunstan was paying his bills on time and therefore he was he was paying debts and I think that the uh, Ani popper just by accepting those payments w- was collecting them um, so again I, I would encourage this court not to adopt the the Brown decision in this case And I also wanted to talk about a a couple other things. The issue of proximate cause, um, opposing counsel has argued that there has to be, um, you have to show proximate cause between the the unfair act. Again, the unfair act in this case is under 75-552, which was collecting fees that Ani Popper was not legally entitled to for the reasons I just explained. There is actually a case from the North Carolina Supreme Court, I believe in 2021, the McMillan versus Blue Ridge case, that actually said that even just the attempt to collect the debt. So even if there is no actual damage, um, that that can trigger the penalties under uh, 7556 under Article under Article Two. Um, The court used the language of uh, a statutory injury. You know, having uh, having the debt collector simply attempting to collect the debt, and that tracks with the language of 7552 that a landlord collecting or attempting to collect the debt um, is, is uh, violating that statute. But in this case, so I don't believe that even if Mr. Dunstan had not paid the fees on time and if Ani Popper had tried to collect them and he refused to pay them, I think Ani Popper could still be liable for attempting to collect the debt and under the McMillan case um, actual damages would not be required because there would be a, a statutory statutory damage or a statutory violation. In that case, but in this case, there were actual damages because he paid the fees 29 times over the course of his tenancy. He paid this illegal uh, flat rate for water 29 separate times. He contracted to do that, didn't he? He did contract to do that, Your Honor. But um, and we respect the freedom to contract in North Carolina, but it is it is not absolute. And there is a case that's cited both in opposing counsel's brief and in my own um, that speaks to that. Uh, and we're looking at the. The, the principle there is that um, if a contract provision is in violation of a relevant statute or public policy, that provision is not enforceable. That's the Hanslet case, which I believe you know opposing counsel cited that as well. But
3: unenforceable and illegal
1: are different.
3: You've you've used the term illegal, and you're you're reading from the language of the case that says unenforceable. Those two things are different in my mind.
1: <clears throat> well. I think that the reason it is unenforceable is because it's illegal, and there's, there's another case, the Lamb case that we cite, that, that kind of makes that connection that says illegal, an illegal contract is not, is not enforceable, so I think that the fact that it's illegal is what makes it unenforceable. Well,
0: it could be unenforceable because it expired. It could have been accomplished. It could have been completed, so there's a lot of reasons a contract may be unenforceable but not necessarily illegal. If it's satisfied, if the contract satisfied, it's unenforceable because it's been satisfied. You couldn't bring an action against a, a contract where all performance has been rendered. You do you agree with that?
1: Well, you're, I understand the, the distinction you're, you're making, but I would just go back to saying the reason why, these, uh, why these, this fee is both illegal and unenforceable is because it violates the the public policy, and both um, the statute 4242 and 62110G that requires the, the metering of water.
0: Let me ask you this. Well, let's let's say that the, the fee, since it's, you're, do we agree it's not based on usage?
1: Absolutely, Your Honor.
0: Okay. Why, could, could, could a landlord not charge a flat fee for electrical service provided to run the pump and to repair the pump? and not charge for the actual usage.
1: Your Honor, i have to go back and look. I believe there's a similar, it's not part of the same statute. I, I believe there's a similar <laughs> provision in Chapter 62 that deals with uh, landlords charging for uh, electrical usage. and I, I think that also requires it to be based on meter consumption. I, I believe so.
0: Okay, let me ask you this. Do, we, do you agree that the only way to dispossess a residential tenant in North Carolina and regain possession is through some rejection?
1: Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. So that
0: was the sole means that the plaintiff had to regain possession of the property. Do you agree with that? Yes. So if that's the sole means they've got to enforce their rights on a holdover tenant, do you agree your client was a holdover tenant?
1: your Honor, he did stay past the the term of the lease. Um, there was also an issue with de- defective notice in that case, which is why I think the holdover claim fell. But he did hold over past the,
0: the lease case. had expired. Do yes, we agree your Honor. On that?
1: Yes, in that sense, he was a holdover tenant.
0: Okay, mind. so if the only way that the the landowner could enforce their right would be to file a summary ejectment proceeding, yes. which is what they did, and there were monies owed. The thirteen fifty. Uh, how could that be an illegal act to try to just enforce your rights to the only method that you have?
1: You're, I think that the the trial court's uh, finding on that. Um, if you give me a second, let me find that here.
0: How can that be an enforcement of a debt if if that's the only way you've got to regain possession?
1: So I think that the section that the trial court looked at on on the second issue, as far as um, the violation for. What was written on the complaint that was filed was based off of a provision. It's, it's not that they're trying to inf- enforce a debt or collect uh, a debt from Mr. Dunstan, but what that provision of Chapter 50 or Section 54 says is that it's illegal for a debt collector to uh, misstate the the character or the extent of a debt in a legal court filing. Um, so it's not the fact that he was trying to collect money that. He believed that was owed to him at that time it 's that he, he misstated what the actual rate of uh, rate of rent was for and the court did find i mean that was the court 's finding there is that the the rate of rent that Ani Popper was claiming that was owed um, was uh, was more than what the actual rate of rent was I think well, a pope, I,
0: I asked that question to counsel about the fifty dollars. It seems to be a dispute over the fifty dollars he, he has said that the rent went up over the stated term, and that the $50 that he had sought to 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 recover under the summary ejectment w- did not include the washer and dryer, that he, they all agreed that they were not going to bill because your, cli- your client wasn't using it.
1: Your and we were trying to review the record while he was making that argument. I cannot find a place in the record where a higher rate of rent uh, happened during the course of the tenancy. What I can see is that...
0: Do you agree that... Once a stated rent in a lease agreement expires and a tenant becomes a holdover tenant, the landlord would be free to increase the rent.
1: I think the landlord would be free to give the tenant an an option there. I think that... Well, I
0: understand that they they demanded that your client vacate and your client refused.
1: I think that... in order for the landlord to raise the rent at the end of a term, they, they would need the tenant's agreement. I mean, the landlord could give the, the tenant an ultimatum, but with, as with any contract, there has to be a meeting of the minds, and if the term of rent were to go up, the parties would have to agree on that. Now, the landlord could, could give the tenant an ultimatum and say, um, I want to raise your rent by $100 a month. Your lease is ending in two months, and if the tenant doesn't agree, then the landlord could say, well, I'm not going to renew your lease, and then per- proceed with an eviction case in that situation. Um, So very quickly, in in summary, um, in conclusion, where we are, uh, Ani Popper violated 7552 by charging and collecting 29 illegal fees for Mr. Dunston. The two reasons why uh, they were not based on meter consumption as required by 62-110G, and again that statute does not only govern public utilities, it governs all lessors of residential properties, and also because it violated 75 dash, uh, or sorry, 42 dash, um 42, because it required Mr. Dunston to pay a fee not for, um, for access to water. So again, landlords do not have to pay for the water for the tenant, but they have to provide access. That's a uh, lack of water is an emily dangerous condition on the property. And I will just close by saying this, this case has a unique set of facts. I mean, I've been representing tenants for close to 10 years at this point, and it's the only case I've ever seen where a landlord signed a lease. Uh, later signed an amendment with a flat fee for well water, um, even though the well had a, a water meter on it. Um, we're just asking that the court apply the letter of the law as written uh, to these unique facts. Um, doing so will not send a, a tidal wave through the landlord-tenant uh, legal world. On the other hand, if the court accepts some of the arguments that OmniPopper is presenting concerning debt collection in general, like the, uh, the, the position that the court should rewrite the definition of debt collector in Chapter 75 to add a default requirement, um, that will send shockwaves not only through the landlord-tenant arena, um, it'll disrupt consumers all over the state in a variety of different contexts, everything from car sales to payday loans, you know, you, you name it. Um, so for these reasons, we do ask that the court, uh, reaffirm, reaffirm the award of damages to Mr. Dunston. I have one question. Yes, Your Honor.
0: And. Um- I pose this to your uh, counsel on the other side. If we agree that the property owner had the right to charge the fee, does that eliminate or, or moot the debt collection argument or the basis for the award?
1: Your Honor, I, I believe if the court were to find that uh, the fee were, were legal and that the landlord had the right to collect that as far as the, the debt collection claim um, that would remove one of the, the elements which would be an unfair act and in this case where act we're arguing that the reason why the act is unfair uh, Is because it's unconscionable under 75-552 and the reason why it's unconscionable is because it's uh, unconscionable for a debt collector to collect or attempt to collect the debt that they're not legally entitled to but we do we do again Believe there's two reasons why they're not legally entitled to that as we've stated
0: okay, and I, would, I, I would, Don't want to put words in my would have believe you'd want the court to affirm the trial court's order?
1: Yes, Your Honor. We're we're asking that the the court reaffirm the trial court's order. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Thank you very much. Rebuttal? Mr. Winston? Yes, Judge Tyson. just want to
2: clarify that the short answer to your question you just asked is absolutely yes. Counsel for the tenant just stated that subsection 62-110G applies to every single landlord in the state that is plainly not the case if i could draw the court's attention to subsection 62-110 g8 i'll just read it for the court notwithstanding any provision of this chapter the commission shall determine the extent to which the services shall be regulated and to the extent rates that may be charged for the services nothing in this subsection shall be construed to alter the rights obligations or remedies of persons providing water or sewer services and their customers under any other provision of law. The question is, what are those other examples? Well, it's, it's the present case, Your honors. It's that private well water agreement. And also to the contiguous issue that opposing counsel raises. The contiguous issue is not really relevant because 62-110G, it only regulates providers. That is, passing through, purchasing water from a supplier and passing it on to the tenants. In order for this court to reverse, it need only accept one of the five independent grounds for reversal. That provides this court this correct conclusion with significant flexibility. It could address each of the issues of first impression, or it could simply conclude that the trial court's order is not supported by its findings of fact on one of the more narrow elements like proximate cause or unfairness. However, in order for this court to affirm as the tenant requests, it must take three unprecedented, extraordinary, and incorrect steps. First, it must apply the North Carolina Debt Collections Act to any contract that's related to household household or personal, just by virtue of there being a contract formed. Second, it would expand the scope of 75 55 to apply to any related fee in any of those contracts, not just incidental fees. And third, this court would need to hold as a matter of law that every private well water agreement in this state that contemplates a flat fee is per se invalid. These three steps would expand the relevant statutory schemes far beyond what the General Assembly ever contemplated and would incentivize litigants to bring NCDCA claims alongside every routine breach of contract claim. Such a result would have a significant chilling effect on the fundamental constitutional right to freedom of contract, thus this court should refuse to accept the tenant's invitation to take these three extraordinary steps. Instead, this court should remain committed to the rule of law, leave policymaking to the general assembly, and reverse the trial court's order. Thank you.
0: Mr. Windsor, where
3: if, is it in the record that there's an increase of rental rate?
2: Uh, transcript page forty-one, Your Honor. Yin Zhang, who is the manager. Page forty-one of the. Page forty-one of the transcript. Yes, Your Honor. She testified that the rent had increased. Uh, Fifty dollars no from from thirteen from eleven seventy five to thirteen fifty on the base rent, so whatever don 't want to do math on the spot, whatever the difference is between those two the base rent went from eleven twenty five eleven seventy five to thirteen fifty. She specifically said that the rent was the total rent, including the water was 14 seventy five base rent being thirteen
0: yes. Let me ask you this when, when, the, when the legislature amends a statute, um, it's presumed that they are changing status quo what what is the purpose of the 2017 amendments the,
2: the purpose seems to be that it also applies to single family homes as as opposing counsel stated it's, it's not just contiguous units but that doesn't matter because it still only regulates providers so the single family home for instance a house in the city here in raleigh where the landlord owns the house but the water is still coming from a public utility and so that landlord to be a provider that's buying water from the public utility keeps the utility service in the landlord's name and then passes it on. But but as Your Honor um, specified, typically the case is the tenant just
0: contracts directly with the public utility. Well, I'm I'm trying to understand then, so does that go back to the source of the water? Yes, exactly. The source of the water is what matters. Is is the source source of the water that triggers coverage
2: or non-coverage under GS-62? That's exactly right. If the source of the water is going to more than 15 units then it's a public utility. So it would be a supplier in that case. If it's less then it's not a public utility so it is the source of the water that's determined that that's what makes the the water supplier either a public utility or not so a private party can be a provider can be yes. a yes sure yeah under under 42 42.1 in the residential rental agreements act it, it seems that the reason the General Assembly put that there is that yes a landlord for instance a private party could be a provider but it, it's also an open question is do, does there need to be 15 or more units or is it less? That's an open question that this court does not need to decide It seems it could go either way, but what the determinative issue is whether there is a provider meaning the pass-through of the charge
0: Thank you yeah. Yeah. Thank you uh, the case is submitted. Uh, we appreciate the good arguments from both sides and uh, If there's nothing further to come before the court. Uh, Ms. McKessie will use